Hello, everyone. This is Employment Notebook on localjobnetwork.com radio. Today, we are going to talk about the Affordable Care Act from the employer's perspective. I'm Lynn Molitor from the Local Job Network. The Affordable Care Act is a U.S. federal statute signed into law by President Barack Obama on March 23, 2010. It represents the most significant regulatory overhaul of the country's health care system since the passage of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. The major provisions of the law will be phased in by January 2014. This episode will discuss the basics of this new law and how it will impact employers directly. This healthcare legislation is getting a lot of coverage by the national media, but I still have basic questions that never seem to get answered. So I asked two representatives from Infinity Benefits Solutions to join me in the studio today and give all of us a tutorial on this healthcare law. In fact, Infinity Benefits Solutions developed the customized health insurance plan that is offered to the employees of the local job network. So welcome Ken Marsh and Chad Winters. Let's start by having each of you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Infinity Benefit Solutions. And Ken, you can start us off first. Great. Well, thanks, Lynn, for having us. Infinity Benefit Solutions is an employee benefits firm. We work with both employers and individuals and guide them through the benefit evaluation process and really help them to identify and to achieve their goals. So at Infinity, I'm the Vice President of Sales and Account Management. I get to work with both our groups and our individuals and then spend uh, the last several months uh, quite a bit of time on the Affordable Care Act. I'm sure you have. And Chad? Yes, I'm an employee benefit consultant at Infinity Benefit Solutions, and I focus in the group market. I also have spent the majority of this past year giving seminars and educating our clients on the Affordable Care Act. And rumor has it that you actually have read the entire Affordable Care Act. (laughs) Most of it. (laughs) That's impressive. Yes. Now I know someone who's actually read it. (laughs) Okay, so at a high level, can you briefly describe the Affordable Care Act so that the listeners and myself are on the same page as you, and we're going to talk about the goals now from the perspective of employers? So the Affordable Care Act, when it was passed, had the goal of um, expanding coverage um, and also to standardize coverage for certain markets. So the law breaks groups or employer-sponsored insurance into two groups, uh, a small group market, which is currently 2 to 49 employees or full-time equivalent employees. Um, then that'll expand in 2016 for to 2 to 99 full-time equivalent employees. Oh. In that marketplace, there are a set of market reforms that I'm sure we'll discuss further on. And um, in addition to that, it also put in place an employer shared responsibility provision. This is also known as the pay or play penalty. For those employers who have more than 50 full-time equivalents, it's the requirement to offer coverage to all full-time employees and dependents. Oh, okay. All right. In addition to that as well, from standardizing uh, the actual contracts and the policies that are sold throughout the industry. So one of the elements of the law is to bring a more standardized approach to benefit designs that are available that employers can choose from. So starting January 1st, 2014, and really a lot of the changes that have, um, that have been coming since the enactment of this law back in 2010 are kind of culminating here January of 2014, are really to standardize what's available to an employer and bring in certain guidelines and thresholds that employers have available to choose from. 
So how does this Affordable Care Act directly impact employers? So have employers already been required to change their coverage to employees as a result of this law? The first thing I think uh, to point out is is that the employer mandate applies to large groups. So that's employers with 50 full-time equivalent employees or more. And the mandate does not apply to a small employer, so an employer with 2 to 49 uh, employees. Okay. And the changes that are going into effect will be upon renewal starting January 1st or later. So if the current policy renews March 1st of 2014, the changes that we're talking about today uh, is when those changes will go into effect for that employer. Oh, okay. And that, again, maybe we should talk about this from the small group and the large group. I mean, that's yes. really where the bifurcation is in this law. Okay. Um, and how it, what the market reforms at the small group level are versus what the uh, the employer shared responsibility provision is at a large group level. Okay. So actually, we're going to talk about the small group and the large group employer right now. So... Let's talk about the small employer first. So that's 2 to 49 employees. That's correct. Yeah, 2 to 49, there is no employer mandate. So uh, small group employers can elect to offer coverage or not offer coverage just as they have been up to this point. Okay. Um, What is changing for a small group employer will be the type of coverages that they can offer. There will be many provisions, uh, many requirements, and many restrictions on the coverages that are going to be available through their plans. For example, maximum deductibles that an employer will be able to select under their health plan will be capped at 2000 for a single and 4000 for a family. There are some exceptions to that. However, uh, the law uh, had the initiative in the direction to limit deductibles that employees and their families uh, would be subject to. And there are many other provisions that are required as well under small group plans. And then a large one of the things that's largely driving um, changes in costs are community rating for small groups. Um, large groups are still going to have the capability or are required to have medical underwriting. For small groups, they're going to go away from medical underwriting and look at just adjusted community rating. Um, which just looks at age, geographic location, tobacco usage, and plan type. So whether it's a single employee, spouse, employee, child, or family. And then age and geographic location have traditionally been used, but age is constrained a little bit from the variance from your youngest employee to your oldest employee. Ah, oh, okay. I have to ask, you, you've mentioned geographic location. We're in Wisconsin. How does Wisconsin differ from... Texas. I'm thinking that those are two different geographic locations. Right. And abs- and, and actually, if you look at Milwaukee versus Green Bay, uh, those are different geographical uh, oh. sections as well. So, so cost can be determined based on geographic location. So a group that's located in Green Bay uh, could have either a lower or a higher cost than a group that's located in Milwaukee based on the overall cost to provide coverage. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, okay. I wasn't... I wasn't connecting the dots there. The cost to provide coverage. Okay. Correct. How are large employers now going to be treated different? And it sounded like large employers are those with more than 50 employees until 2016, then uh, large employers will be greater than 100? Well, the Did ch- I get that right? I might write um, my notes down. In, in, in a sense, yes. For, certain, for one provision, yes. Uh, for oh. another provision, no. 
Um, so if you're looking at a large employer from the um, employer shared responsibility provision, which is the mandate, the employer mandate, that will be always set at 50 full-time equivalent employees. Okay. And just to step back when I say 50 full-time equivalent, what I mean is a combination of both those full-time employees who work 30 or more hours per week and then adding a factor of all your part-time employees Okay. So in order to get a full-time equivalent, you put all your full-time employees in one bucket, add up all the hours worked for all your part-time employees, those that work less than 30 hours a week, mm-hmm. and in a month, and divide that by 120. Oh, and that boy. factor or that number yeah. will be added to your full-time employees. And from that, you can determine whether you are a large employer or a small employer for purposes of the employer mandate. Oh, boy. I hope everyone got that formula. If not, you can call Chad and Ken after the show. <laughs> Yeah, it gets really fun when you have seasonal employees and variable hour employees, too. Right. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a little while. So so everyone stay with us. Stay tuned. Yes. So do you want to say anything more about the large employers? Yes, a large employer, so someone with more than 50 full-time equivalent employees subject to the employer mandate has the requirement that they offer coverage to all their full-time employees and their dependents. The offer of coverage has to be affordable and meet minimum value standards. The failure to provide an offer of coverage uh, results in a penalty. The failure to offer affordable coverage results in an alternative penalty. Um, It's an either-or situation. So a large employer who fails to offer coverage will be um, faced with a uh, $2,000 non-deductible excise tax. Um, They can subtract the first 30 full-time employees from that number, but this is an across-the-board failure to offer coverage. Um, The trigger for the penalty, it's important that people realize there's a trigger for the penalty, and that is an employee who go to the marketplace and qualify for a subsidy. The other penalty, which is called the unaffordability penalty, is if you offer a plan that is deemed unaffordable for the um, employee. Oh, okay. So they're not making, the employee's not making enough. The employer is charging too much. Um, Oh, oh. (laughs) So. Okay, the employer is charging too much of the employee for their Portion of the premium. Yeah, okay. So the employee contribution (laughs) can't be more than nine and a half percent of the household income. Uh, yeah, it's it wow. The way it was written into the law versus the way it was implemented through regulations means that it doesn't truly mean household income. There are safe harbors for employers to use to be deemed compliant with the law. And for those who don't aren't aware of what a safe harbor is, a safe harbor would be a way that you would charge premiums in this case that such that if you said you were doing this particular safe harbor, you would be deemed compliant with the law even if it wasn't in effect compliant. Oh my goodness. Do you want to go into what the safe harbors are? Sure. Let's let's go for it. <laughs> okay. I'll just try to touch on these briefly. Um, one of the safe harbors would be if you don't charge your employees more than nine and a half percent of their premium that's tied to the federal poverty level. Okay. So for 2013, that number was around $12,000. If you take that and you divide it by 12 and then multiply it by 9.5%, you get around $90 a month. So an employer couldn't ask an employee to contribute more than $90 a month. There's a rate of pay safe harbor where you're looking at somebody's hourly wages or salary wages, 9.5% of that on a monthly basis, or box one of the W-2, so your adjusted gross income turning that into a monthly amount and then multiplying that by 9.5%. And we can walk you through all these safe harbors and affinity benefit solutions. Yeah, I was going to say employers, 
<laughs> I think you need if you haven't partnered with a consultant, I think this is the this would be the 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 reason to do that. So, okay, let's keep plowing through here. I did hear that the law was delayed for a year for employers. So, is this true and how does what does this delay mean for employers and their employees? So, the law itself, the employer mandate is still on the books. It is the enforcement mechanism and the reporting requirements that have technically been delayed, which in effect delays the employer mandate. On July 2nd, uh, the government came out and said that we are going to delay implementation of the reporting requirements, and we are going to delay the penalty for not offering coverage or for offering unaffordable coverage. So uh, that is okay. delayed for one year. Um, the reporting requirements are now voluntary. We're recommending that our large employers do comply with the voluntary requirements to put oh, okay. the administrative processes in place to figure out what's going to be the easiest process for that. I think that was important um, advice for people to note. So you do, even though there aren't the reporting requirements in 2013, by all means, do it if if you can and kind of flush out. Figure out how yeah. it works best with your either your payroll company or your whatever, with your accounting all. firms, whoever's helping facilitate your um, taxes. Okay, here's my next question. It may need some clarification. So are employers required to offer health insurance coverage to employees? If they have more than 50 full-time equivalent employees, okay. if they fail to do it, it would result in a penalty. But they will not get penalized in 2014 because of the delay in the yeah. mandate? Yes, but one thing to consider if you're an employer in that situation is that if you have a number of employees who are likely to qualify for a subsidy on the individual marketplace, mm -hmm. and then you intend to be compliant in 2015 with the law, you're going to have to come up with a good employee communication strategy because those people oh. would no longer be allowed to qualify for that subsidy. So they oh. would have a subsidy for a year and, and then lose it. So oh, good point. just um, be aware of that, cognizant of it. It might not make, be determinative of whether or not you offer coverage in 2014, but something to keep your uh, eye on or be aware of. Yeah, because you could really have everyone confused in that situation. Yes. So do employers have to offer health insurance to an employee's children and dependents? And how is children and dependent defined? The answer is yes. So dependents uh, need to be offered uh, coverage through the employee's uh, policy. Uh, spouses are not required to be included under that under oh. that mandate. So even if a spouse is not employed, say they're a stay-at-home person, they don't have to be covered? It really depends on your what your insurance carrier's contract says. You don't really get to negotiate that too often. Traditionally, we've always seen spousal coverage yeah. offered. Employers don't have to pay for it, but they mm -hmm. do have to offer dependence coverage. Ah, what is a dependent now? That has changed recently, hasn't it? So up to age 26 uh, in all states, uh, dependents can remain under the insurance contract for their, for their parents. Is that through 26 or? Up, up, up to, to 26. Oh, no wonder. Because I heard the press conference last week and the president said through 25. And I'm like, I thought it was through 26, up so to. it's up yep. to 26. Yep. All right, good to know. So um, can employers maintain the same insurance plan as they currently have? I keep hearing this, does your plan pass the test? 
Yeah. And, and I, I think you yep. referred to this test a little while ago. Right. That's correct. And I think that that's what's been uh, recently publicized with if you, you know, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. Um, and I think important for this discussion is to differentiate, delineate between a small group and a large group. Mm-hmm. And so the changes for small groups that are going into effect for January of 2014 or upon renewal, uh, all plans must provide essential health benefits, and there's 10 of them. Uh, they also have the deductible limits that I uh, briefly mentioned. So it's 2000 for single, 4000 for family. Okay. There are some exceptions. So if an employer is electing to reimburse a portion of the deductible, so for example, uh, an employer can still offer a $3,000 deductible single plan if they're providing $1,000 reimbursement to the employee uh, via a, a health savings account or a health reimbursement account. As long okay. as the employee only has the 2000 out of their pocket limit for that deductible, that's an acceptable plan. Out-of-pocket maximums are changing as well. So the uh, out-of-pocket maximum for plans cannot exceed $6,350 for a single and $12,700 for a family. It means that employee and a family or a family cannot have more than that amount out of their pocket in a, in a year's period. Oh. And then all plans, once again, this is for a small group, have to have guarantee issue. So plans cannot be denied based on health conditions and no pre-existing conditions. Mm. So the question is, can an employer keep their plan? Yes, if it falls within those new parameters. Uh-huh. If it doesn't, then they will need to make modifications uh, under, those, under those guidelines. For a large group, there is really, uh, they, most employers will be able to keep their, their current plans with some exceptions. Out, the out-of-pocket limit that I briefly mentioned, the $6,350 for a single and the 12700 for a family, that also applies to large groups as well. Okay. So if the current plan exceeds that, then they'll need to make modifications to get that within the, the, the acceptable parameters. But the deductible limitations, the essential health benefits do not apply to a large group plan. And just to clarify, too, um, the deductible caps um, only are on small business, so you will have individuals who have deductibles higher than two and four. And for the small group, there are exceptions, as Ken said, one of them being an actuarial value. Did you mention the metallic levels? No. So for small groups, all the plans that uh, will be considered qualified health plans have to fall into one of four metallic level ranges, uh, from platinum all the way down to bronze. Oh. So platinum is the richest plan that's available, and it has to uh, be at least 90% actuarial uh, equivalent. So that particular plan would pay at least 90% or approximately 90% of all the overall benefit. It's in a more expensive plan. And then there can be a, a plus two or a minus two variance. So a platinum plan needs to fall within 0.92 down to 0.88. Then you have a silver plan <laughs> or a gold plan, a silver plan, and a bronze. So they have to fall within those particular ranges. So if a plan, a bronze plan, falls within that particular range, in this particular case, it would be 0.58 to 0.62, and has deductibles higher than 2,000, 4,000, that would be an acceptable plan. And for employers who have plans that are 75% actuarial value, so they're actually better than a silver, but not quite a gold, Mm -hmm. those plans cannot be qualified health uh, health plans. So even though it's a good plan, a solid plan, they would have to be mapped to a plan that does fit within none of those Uh. metallic Ooh, there's a lot to think about. Yeah, do not put this off if <laughs> if you've got that notion that you can deal with it next year. Let's quickly, I don't know if quickly is the right word, <laughs> let's talk about the types of employees that an employer can have. What is the definition of a full-time employee? You've already told us what the full-time equivalent employee is, but what is the definition of a full-time employee? 
The law defines a full-time employee as somebody who works 30 hours or who the employer reasonably expects to work 30 hours or who does, in fact, work 130 hours. Someone who works less than 30 hours would then be considered a part-time employee. Ah. And then this law creates a third category of employees called variable hour employees. Oh, okay. So variable hour employees would be someone the employer does not reasonably know on the date of hire whether that person will be working 30 or more hours a week. They then don't have to offer coverage to that person while they're going into what we call a measurement period. Ah, um, so okay. it creates this new category of employees that employers need to be aware of. And what did you call it again? Variable? Hour employees. Oh, all right. So this might be... We're going to have to learn that one. The wait staff at a restaurant. Oh, okay. Um, yep. Tellers at a bank. Oh. Retail employees. So which in the old way, we would have said that they were part-time employees. That's correct. But now they're variable hour employees. With the possibility that they're full-time or part-time after you take the ah. requisite measurement period. and then What is the measurement period? It's a period of no less than three and no more than 12 months. Ah, okay. Um, and from that, you look back and determine whether or not they did work on average more than 30 hours a week. If they did, you have an administrative period for which you can enroll them on your plan. Mm. And then a stability pe- period equal to the measurement period for which you have to treat them as determined by the Ooh. measurement period. Okay. That was a good answer, though. I never heard any of this before. All right. So part-time employees, do they need to be offered coverage? No. But can they be offered coverage at higher premiums if um, you choose, if an employer chooses? You would not be able to charge an employee greater premiums based on the hours that they work. However, an employer could elect to uh, change their definition of an eligible employee under their current plan. And this is now uh, under the guidelines, you're either in or you're out based ah. upon the employer's definition of an eligible employee. Oh, okay. And one thing I think we're doing too, where it's similar to that, we're looking at um, in order for coverage to be affordable, tying their contribution to the percentage of their paycheck. Yeah. yeah. So somebody would pay nine and a half percent of the premium up to a set amount. Mm -hmm. So that's a contribution strategy we're looking at where they might, because you can't discriminate against lower paid employees. You can't discriminate in favor of highly compensated individuals. Law is not exactly clear on whether you can discriminate in favor of low paid employees. Mm -hmm. So that would be one of the issues there. What about college interns? Do they need to be covered? So like, for example, we have uh, college interns who work full-time in the summer here, and then they're part-time during the school year. Do you pay them? Yes. Then they're kind of what our definition of variable hour employees are. Oh. But if they're uh, college kids, they usually get parents' coverage, so. Right, yeah. Um, but You'd still maybe have to make the offer, and they might have a valid waiver. Um, seasonal employees. So do they fall into this variable hour employee? So seasonal employees to me would be they're very busy during the summer months, you know, maybe doing landscaping work, and then their work falls off during the wintertime. So seasonal employees are a very um, gray area for certain aspects of this law. Um, There is one clear provision where seasonal employees are directly addressed, and that is counting the full-time equivalency to know whether or not you're a large employer or a small employer. So if you hire seasonal employees who work full-time or Mm part-time, but they um, work less than 120 days or four months in a year, 
And you would have, so if you wouldn't have had seasonal employees, you would have had 40 full-time equivalent employees. But due to your seasonal employees, you have on average 55. Mm -hmm. So technically you would be a large employer, but a provision of the law allows you to subtract those seasonal employees for purposes of calculating applicable large employer status. Okay. So that's how seasonal employees are determined or how how they affect that specific provision. Mm -hmm. Um, For purposes of offering coverage, if you are a large employer, regardless of seasonal employees, the um, most you can, if you expect them to work more than 30 hours a week, the law limits the waiting period um, for somebody to be offered coverage to 90 days. So if the seasonal employee worked more than 90 days, you would be... At this point, at this point, the yeah. law doesn't allow for discrimination based on seasonal employee status. Now, if you have somebody who works a lot in the summer or in the beginning of the year, if there is a 26-week break between employment periods, okay, you can treat that employee as a new employee. Oh, oh. Now, do I dare ask this next question? What about contractors? How do they fit into this? Now, my definition of a contractor is we've got some IT contractors who they are not technically employees of ours. They are from a IT firm and they work full time here, but they get pay- they don't get paid by us. So I think you brought up there's two types when I think of oh, contractors. Okay. The one type that you have alluded to contract employees through a staffing agency. Yeah. The employer who hires them through the staffing company has no requirements under this law. However, staffing companies have to treat them as full-time employees. So there are some going to there're going to be some direct consequences of that probably meaning a higher cost to hiring them because yeah. you're going to you know share a portion of what they decide determine to do whether or not they offer coverage or don't. The other type of contractor that I was thinking of is a 1099 independent contractor. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this, again, for those employers listening to this that are considering doing this, please talk to your own legal counsel. But it really comes down to direction and control. But if somebody is a 1099 employee or independent contractor, they're not considered an employee of the employer. Right. But be careful about that. Oh, Okay, this is, okay, now all of a sudden I'm starting to head a little closer to home. So one quick question. I know we're coming to the end of our first part of this two-part podcast, but has it been exaggerated or underreported in the media about our employers starting to downsize or drop employees to part-time due to the statuses that we've just been talking about? I don't think that the concern has been uh, over-dramatized or, or over-reported. I think that that's a, a real evaluation right now that's going mm-hmm. on with employers as far as how do you, you know, what will your benefit offering look like right. in the new world? I do know that the most employers today are in pretty much the same position that they always have been. And that is you offer benefits to employees to really attract and retain them. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't change under reform, right? That does not go away. So for an employer to still be competitive and to have good quality employees most likely they will need to continue to offer coverage. Ah, okay. I think the the dynamic now or the twist is going to be with the exchanges and some of the options that are available to small employers to now have this alternate distribution or this alternate source for uh, obtaining their coverage. Mm-hmm. And I will just uh, tell a 
um, story that I heard from one of the attorneys that presented um, at a conference I was at, and he's, his recommendation to those considering doing this is to be a tiger. Yeah. And what he meant by that <laughs> was uh, in uh, the early 2000s, Tiger Woods moved from California to Jupiter, Florida. And if you know the difference between income state taxes in California and Florida, one has them, one doesn't. Right. Recently, Phil Mickelson <laughs> said that say. he wanted to move out of California because the taxes were a little too high. And he got a lot of hate mail. So he is now living in California for the um, foreseeable future. Um, so he said, be a tiger if you're going to make decisions like that. And he used the example of a big restaurant um, group mm-hmm. that made a similar announcement. And in the first quarter of 2011 or 12, they lost uh, their profits were down a third. So oh, they did. Oh. Yeah. So they're um, so strategically when you're thinking about making these decisions, this is, you know, you have to realize that this is uh, something that invokes a lot of passion from individuals. Yes. So just be alert. So on that note, we are going to take a break, but we still have much more to talk about. We have been talking with Ken Marsh and Chad Winters from Infinity Benefit Solutions about what employers should know about the Affordable Care Act. Thank you, gentlemen. This has been a lot of helpful information for us to digest. In part two of our interview, we will touch on more pricing issues on the medical plans and any penalties that employers may be subject to. So please stay tuned for more. I'm Lynn Molitor on localjobnetwork.com radio. Thanks for listening.